Let us pray. God of celebration, how you rejoice in your love for us, and you take delight in all our expressions of love for you. You encourage us to go out into the world as your people, a people of praise. Your joy is our strength, your grace centered on us, your glory fills our hearts. And we celebrate our thanksgiving in music, in singing, and from the very centre of our hearts. You call us to worship you, not just in this place, but in the way that we live our lives. How should we worship you? Sitting quietly on a church chair in solemn reverence? Gazing at the stained glass windows in prayerful adoration. Dancing down the aisle to exhilarating music. Following the common order prayer book ritually. It does not matter, Lord, how we worship you. You have created us in your own image. You have created us to worship you. You have made each one of us unique, made each one of us different by design. How should we worship you? Should we compare and judge other people who are different to us? Or should we be humble and celebrate the differences across our faith communities? The differences in the way that individuals feel drawn to worship you and to express their faith. Let each individual come to you in their own way and with the freedom for that personal relationship with you to evolve. We are sorry when we are too quick to judge other people for the way that they express their faith. So Lord, in your mercy, forgive us. And as we worship you today, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might leave here refreshed and ever joyful. As a family of your people, hear us as we pray together in the words that Jesus taught, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Helen's going to put a picture up. Oh, there it is on the screen. Um, should be bright enough for you. And so that is an image of what the Ark of the Covenant might have looked like. It looks uh, very shiny and polished. And as you can see, there are two carrying handles. And that's to symbolize that this Ark of the Covenant, so important for the ancient Hebrew people in their worship and in their relationship with God. 
would take the ark wherever they travelled, through the wilderness places of their life and their world. They would take the ark and they would place it center stage in the tabernacle, the tent, uh, which they set up in order that people could go to it and worship God. Of course, the whole thinking about the ark then, and we'll explain more of this in the, uh, the sermon, is that this was something holy, that the ark contained the presence of God. And so people came to this ark to worship it because it was so holy, the presence of God. So it made me think about the building and the objects that we are surrounded by in our church. And I wonder if we were thinking about it, what we might think are the holiest items in our church building. Is it the oldest, perhaps? Maybe we would think, oh, well, it might be the oldest uh, whatever object has been here since the beginning of the, the church's establishment. And uh, I was thinking about this, so it's not these two windows, but the window above the screen would perhaps be one of the oldest items installed uh, in the church. Is that the holiest item in our church? Or is it perhaps at the cross? Oh, a wonderful gift from the guild to the church, creatively drawn and made together. Or is it the, the lectern? Again, a, a generous gift of, of a family to the church. The lectern is not old. It's not the original uh, pulpit. That's long gone. Uh, I think there's been various versions of the pulpit in this church over the 140 years, roughly. Um, that's relatively new. Or the font. It all perhaps depends on your personal perspective. The communion table. What, of course, we are about to learn in our thinking today is that when we are talking about the holy places of the church or the world, we shouldn't be fixed on fixtures and fittings. There is a lot to learn from the Hebrew people and their attachment to the Ark of the Covenant when it comes to the presence of God in our life, the presence of God that we worship. But what we might conclude right at the outset is that the presence of God is not stored in objects or localized in specific places. The presence of God is something bigger, wider, and more magnificent than that. And that's what we're celebrating and thinking about today. We continue our story of David, and we read today from 2 Samuel, the second book of David's stories, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and then verses 12 to 19. Listen for the word of God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up 
From there, the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the name of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Iowa, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Iowa went in front of the Ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, with castanets and with cymbals. And at verse 12, it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obadabam and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obadabab to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and the whole house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. Amen, and may God bless to us this reading from God's Word. We continue with the hymn 692, Jesus Puts This Song Into Our Hearts. Jesus teaches how to be a family. 
hard work singing again, isn't it? Especially with, face, especially with face masks. So after that song, I say to you, be still for the presence of the Lord. The hymn of that title, Be Still for the Presence of the Lord, is a well-known one. A popular hymn, is it a statement or is it a command? All three, popular, a statement and a command, I'd say. It's a statement of the reality that to meet God, we need to still ourselves from the other noises of the world. But it's also a command, a command of God that to function best, to be fully human, to be all that we can be, we must still ourselves and find and dwell in God. Not just a song title. A good hymn, not just a hymn though. For the ancient people of Israel, we could call them a tribe. We have discussed before that a common belief was that the place where God was found was the temple. And throughout the centuries of that history, the temple was indeed the holy seat of faith. So much so that pilgrims traveled for days and for miles to attend the temple, to find God there. Even Jesus, we know, was taken there by his family on a pilgrimage. And Jesus sat in what he described as his father's house. The Ark of the Covenant, as we said, is a crucial ingredient of the belief of the Hebrew people. It signified the nearness of God. Wherever the Ark was, God was. It was holy, but it was also, of course, politically a symbol of power. It was so significant that Israel's enemies feared it because it seemed to signify that Israel was stronger than anybody else. And those in charge of Israel's faith, the temple leaders, the high priests, they used the ark and they used this idea of you know, the presence of God being confined to a place, almost like a stick to, to keep the people in order. We are so great, we're in charge, we control who gets in, who gets to see it, where it goes. That's how powerful we are. Some of you might recall Steven Spielberg's film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in the film, the ark is found by those seeking symbolic power for their own ends. The film successfully sets a story within the context of Nazi ideology from the war years, seeking symbols of power deployed in their political endeavours. Thankfully, Spielberg satisfyingly puts those attempts for such power in their place in the film. So before we go on a wee bit more about the ark, at the basic level, it's a wooden box holding the stone tablets of Moses, the ones with the Ten Commandments on it. Two long staves 
attached to the box in order that the box could be transported wherever the people were traveling. A concrete symbol of God's self-revelation to Moses, a ritual object, the ark tells a story. But the ark also points to a greater, wider narrative, the narrative of God delivering his people from slavery, It tells a story of divine guidance through the wilderness years. It reminds the people of their salvation, being saved by God who bestowed on them special protection. Whether we think of the ark during the days of journeying of the Hebrew people or when it was in situ in the temple in the city of David, it clearly has a central place in the life of faith for this people. As we said, a concrete symbol of God's presence with them. This story of David today makes us consider once again the place or the places where God is present. And yes, it is one of the most commonly preached themes, sermons that you probably will hear in the church, and you've definitely heard me talking about it over and over again. And I don't make any excuse for that. And I'm not sorry that we're revisiting that theme again today because it's that important for us, for us to think about the presence of God in our lives and where we, you and me, where we find God. In 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant signaled God's presence and promise among the people. How do we recognize God's presence? What symbols, objects, stories help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear God's presence in the world. Stories from Scripture help, such as the Exodus story from Egypt, or the boy Samuel hearing God's voice, or the influence of the prophets, or indeed the teaching of the gospel. All of these stories, of course, make God's presence in our lives known to us and his presence in the world. Buildings, buildings such as this one with its tall steeple rising high to the sky. Again, buildings can make God's presence felt and known. Recalling the story of a building, the story of how a congregation of the church was established and a building erected, such as the story of our church here. The faith of generations, starting with a driven determination to acquire some land, to build a church quickly, to resource it. The story of growth years of a congregation as it put out its tentacles into the the community surrounding the building. The hard work of planning for and securing funds and the refurbishment of this building a number of years ago now 
to give us a place and to give future generations a place where the activities of, of, of the church can be made appropriate to the times. That story tells a story of God's presence in people's lives and in our communities. And special objects too, don't get me wrong, they too can tell of the presence of God. Presentation or ornaments or the installations of stained glass windows. Talking of which, take a window for instance. Not only do many windows tell a particular story from the Bible, like the, the calming of the, the storm, the, the, the image we have here, or the, the, the fields and the sowing of the seed in that one. But often, particularly true for modern windows and indeed sort of banners, is you can localize the story of the Bible with the things that are pertinent to your community. Particularly this one I often think of, the, the, the sea and the fishing um, that was so important to early ancient Aberdeen. And then of course here we can look at that and we can see the fields of Aberdeenshire to me uh, reflecting through that window. So you can see how objects like stained glass windows can be presented in such a way that we are encouraged to feel and sense the presence of God in our experience of not just church, but experience of life, daily life. But the danger, of course, is that special objects, or indeed the rituals of church, or sacred buildings, become idols in themselves rather than signs pointing to God with us. And so to discover and make tangible the presence of God in our lives and make such divine experience available to many, many others too, we must cultivate a dynamic awareness that allows the rituals and the stories and the places and the objects to act as a link, like a hyperlink. You know nowadays, you know that, what a hyperlink is, uh, where you get a body of text in, a, in an email and you get that blue colored bit that you just click the link and you're taken to a new page that opens up for you. Maybe that's the way we should think about all of this in church and the objects and the rituals. That they're good, but they're intended to take us into a rich, experience, a real experience of God's presence in our lives and world. God's incarnated, his born in the world presence, is revealed in what one biblical commentator calls the nanoseconds of noticing. Like a shaft of light on the floor, a tiny hand reaching out to ours, the quiet dignity of an elderly man on a bus. In other words, we don't have to wait until we are in church or we're opening a Bible to know God's presence or to be in the presence of the holy. The holy is not stored in some box, nor is it corralled into a particular definable space, location or circumstance 
And it's certainly not, and this is, I think, very important, it's not admission controlled by the gatekeepers of holy experience. The temple guards of the past had no right to determine who gets to know of God's presence and who doesn't. And today, we might say that the institution of the church, the leaders of the church, have no right to devise a policy that would exclude the free workings of God's Spirit doing what God wants. The proclamation of Emmanuel, God with us, means that the holy presence of God is available always. If we pause and pay attention, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Brother Lawrence, some of you might have heard of the Carmelite monk of the 17th century residing in France. Hugely influential when it comes to prayer life. Um, and some of you, if you follow um, uh, schedules for how to pray and to kind of how to kind of find God in, in quiet moments of life, might know of Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God he taught, God is present everywhere and at all times. You need not cry very loud. He is nearer to us than we think. There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. How will knowing such presence of God in your life leave you feeling? David danced. David danced with joy. With joy that was expressed in an exuberant and no hold, holding back way. A confidence in God was revealed. In David's case, knowing the presence of God evoked festive joy. For us, it invites us to live similarly in an abundance of outpoured joy. Not short-lasting, not base joy, but long-lasting and natural. For us, as church, it is our responsibility to make the corporate availability of the presence of God known to as many people as possible in our building, in our activities, in our rituals, in our worship, in our fellowship. We can do that. But ultimately, we are hyperlinks. We are signposts that direct people, including us, that direct people to the presence of God in the real world and in our real lives. Amen.
Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the time that we share together here or wherever we are. We thank you for the joy of our family and friends. We thank you for the simple things in life. As we join our hearts and minds in prayer, not only in celebration before you, but also our hearts being weighed down with so many sad and troublesome things happening in our world today, we call upon you to hear us. Right now we are thinking of all those going through difficult times of feeling alone and discouraged. May they know your loving, warm presence surrounding them. We are bringing to you all those who have got caught in bitter conflicts or racial tensions or community prejudices. May they know your divine care and protection within them. We lift our hands to you, all of those whose lives are overshadowed by pain, illness, poor mental health, bereavement. May they find everlasting hope in you. Lord, we seek your direction for all those who are leading our country and community with perseverance and without adequate reward. May they be strengthened by your Holy Spirit. For these and all your people, we pray, for the richness of your blessing among us, draw us closer to you, our loving and gracious God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We close with him, 286, Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord.
celebration, send us out into the world to dance before you, letting our joy be known in our words and actions, letting your love be shown in our care for others. May your spirit continue to direct our steps and keep us always in unity. Amen.